Hey everyone, welcome to the 234th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a stellar show for you today. We're going to be talking about a big reverse merger in the smart home space, Google's new proposed product, more on Google with Project Chicard. Facebook has released, wow, new portal devices. We've got a report about poor security practices in the IoT. And we have a brand new device for making TV a more immersive experience. Plus, if you have your kids on your Amazon Echo device, you're going to want to hear this story. And we've got a little bit of news bits from the industrial space, smart glasses, and for facial recognition. Plus, we're also going to hear from our sponsor of Faro. And this week's guest is Dan Rosicki, who is the CEO and founder of the TransTech Group. This is a company that does pavement engineering, has built a Bluetooth sensor, and we're going to talk about things like, I don't know, how the future of roads are going to change with technology, including a small bit about bioluminescent trees. Very cool. All right. So let's get this cracking. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Simple Commands. Do you wish that you could do more automation and routines with your smart home devices? Simple Commands is a cloud-based service that not only allows you to access all of your smart devices in one place, but it allows you to use triggers and routines to customize and automate your smart home. And Simple Commands continues to support new services. So coming soon is Wise Support, Sonos Voice for IKEA speakers, Sonos Voice for Google Calendar notifications and reminders, and Sonoff support. So sign up for an account online at www.simplecommands.com or download the app in your app store. I'm going to tell you guys, I've been playing with this and it's actually very powerful. So check it out. Okay, Kevin. Let's kick it off with Vivint, the big story in the smart home world this week. Actually, last week, the big story was Cedia. And I, you know, I looked at the news. I didn't see a whole lot of exciting things come out of Cedia. So we're going to just skip over most of that. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. There's so much news. But on Monday, Vivint, which is a home security company based out of Utah, they've got about 1.1, 1.15 million subscribers, competes with companies like Alarm or ADT, they went public via a reverse merger with a company called Mosaic, which is really just a shell company created by the SoftBank group to bring a company public. So that's a lot of weird financial terms. But essentially, the bottom line is Vivint is a publicly traded company now. It had been owned by a private equity group. So this gives it a couple of things. One, it got $700 million in cash, which it's going to use to pay down its debt to its private equity firm. This is kind of like financial engineering. I don't love it. But mm. it also has publicly traded stock, which, if it goes well, could be used to make acquisitions. And I bring this up because there are a lot of companies. We're at this place where we have a lot of companies that are still pretty viable out there, but there are maybe single product companies, there's no clear exit for them. There's no clear way to for them to go. So we've seen a lot of buyouts already. So Residio, which is the spin out from Honeywell and does the Honeywell home branded goods, they've actually bought three or four companies in the last few months. And 
We've also seen the creation of companies like Eslo, which came in and bought Veralite, Centralite, and Mios, and some other companies. So there is an opportunity. So Kevin and I wanted to talk about the companies that we think might be good for a buyout. My number one pick, Canary. Mm. It's a good product. Yes, it is. Ranked highly on the security front. So mm-hmm. so it has the alarm, it has some cameras, but I don't know where else it can go from here, how it can expand. And they do have venture backing. So mm. yeah. The other one I would say is probably Eve, the sensor company. Mm-hmm. They've made a big bet on HomeKit. I don't know how well that's playing out for them. I think they'd probably be better as an accessory as like smart right. home becomes more of a a small add-on buy kind of thing. Yeah. What do you think? I would propose the two W's. One would be Wink, which I know is was sold to the uh, Will I Am company, whatever his company is. I don't remember the name of the company, but I yes, think it, I think it's, it's called Company IB. But yes, Will I Am. And I, you know, I'm not saying they're for sale or anything, but nothing has been happening with that product. So I don't know if they've been looking for an exit, couldn't find one. They're just happy with whatever they're doing, which again. I'm not seeing anything there. I would like to see somebody do something with with Wink. That would be my number one. And number two, and I definitely don't want to see this happen, Wise. Uh, I don't want to see them bought, but I could see somebody scooping them up and because they just, there's so much appeal. They're so hot right now. They are hot. And, and, you know, the thing is, at such a low cost, I got to believe another bigger company could say, we could bust big volumes of this stuff out, bigger than, than they're doing today. And we can integrate it with this and that. So I, I don't want to see it happen, but that would be my my number two pick. Okay. So that's four companies that I would keep an eye on just to see what happens to them next. Maybe Vivint will buy them. Maybe not. Maybe someone else will. I think we can all guarantee that a lot of these companies that were started in the wake of Google paying $3.2 billion for Nest probably have some outsized valuations and expectations. Mm -hmm. So I don't think these are going to be like awesome deals. All right, moving on. Kevin, you have been validated. Tell us all about this anticipated Google product. I won't say I told you so. Don't worry. But I told you. No, just kidding. So 9to5Google is reporting through trusted sources, people familiar with the matter, that on October 15th, which is a fact, October 15th, Google will have a hardware event in New York City. But on the 15th, they will introduce the new Nest Wi-Fi product, which will, as I said back in November, well, November, I said last year, I proposed the idea of merging Google Wi-Fi with Google Assistant. And then in April, I did spot Chromium code that the Chromium... OS team, that really is the Google team, uh, had a device called Mistral, and it had a lot of similar code bits to a product called Gale, and Gale turned out to be Google Wi-Fi. So tying that those code commits together with Qualcomm's new QC404 and 405 chips led me to say, that's what they're doing, a new mesh Wi-Fi system with built-in Google Assistant. Now, 9to5Google says this will be more like an Eero product in that It'd be like a base station that apparently will not have Google Assistant features, but the, we'll call them beacons. I don't really like that word because that means something access else to points. me. Thank you. I agree, right? The access points will be smaller for mesh networking. You'll put those around the house and they will 
have a microphone and a speaker. So that way your mesh Wi-Fi, at least in the access points, is also a Google Assistant. Oh, okay. Eero calls their access points beacons. Maybe that's where they're getting that. That's probably why, yes. So the main brains has nothing, but then I could buy these access point slash beacons and they would have Google Assistant. And do we think they're going to work with our existing, like your existing Google Wi-Fi system? So that's the thing, because there's still an open question of if these will be Wi-Fi 6 ready, because the chipsets actually are inside them. But then you run into a, you know, I know it's backwards compatible, so you could theoretically use these with the old Google Wi-Fi system. I think you'll be able to, but I think what they're going to push is, hey, these are Wi-Fi 6 at some point in time, and you want to, you want the whole system. And for those of you guys who are like, Wi-Fi 6, what? We talked about this. And our recommendation, again, this is the next generation of Wi-Fi, is you don't need to rush out now and buy a new router. But if you are in the market for a new router, we recommend going Wi-Fi 6 ready. Yes. You're not going to see Wi-Fi 6 in smart home devices. And the capabilities of Wi-Fi 6 are geared more around supporting more than 40 or 50 devices in a single place. So some of you might be getting up there, but that only works if all of those devices are Wi-Fi 6 compatible, which they won't be because they're already here. So the point is buy a new, go for Wi-Fi 6 ready. Looking at your old gear and going, I don't know, just hang out for a while. Just wait. Yeah, I, it's worth pointing out, not that it's a smart home thing, but the new iPhones actually support Wi-Fi 6. Yes, you should definitely look for that in your phones, guys. Yep. All right. Moving on. Ooh, fashion meets tech. This is my favorite place in the world. <laughs> Google, Project Jacquard. I feel like, man, this has been so long for me. But basically, Project Jacquard was a Google ATAP project that it, it implanted sensors into fabric. It lets you use touch and it converts your touch into commands. What they did first was this Levi's jacket. You may remember it. It was a $350 trucker jacket from Levi's and you could control your phone and volume playback on your sleeve. All right, fine. Now (laughs) they've launched a collaboration with Yves Saint Laurent and they are doing a backpack, a $995 backpack. But designer, <laughs> <laughs> you say Laurent. All right, so that's a lot of money. It is, and the straps on the backpack are going to be jacquard enabled. I don't really know. You're going to be able to move your hand in gestures on your backpack and turn up your volume, stop a call, start a call, etc. Okay, so these are obviously very expensive. This yes. is not for the common person, but I'm really excited about it because. All of these collaborations and tests are showing us how to weave technology, quite literally, into fabric. So they're weaving, I don't remember if it's silver threads or some conductive threads, into this fabric. And that's the whole point. And then you pop a little sensor thing in, and then the sensor convert a little computing module, basically, and it converts that to commands. I love this because I want tech-enabled clothing, and I want it to be washable, and I want it to be not quite as expensive. Yeah. So, I love this, too, from a technology standpoint. I don't love this as a consumer product standpoint yet. It's way too early. I think 
it's great that they're putting these out there so they can get feedback and testing and all that. I mean, it's a lot of money for you to be a beta tester essentially, but whatever. I could see this far more useful far sooner in NASA spacesuits and pilot suits and so on. This feels like a Google mistake. They just go for consumers. Remember Google Glass? This is yes, something I do. that- Yes, I do. I'm wearing them right now. And to me, it was very clear that the consumer market wasn't ready for something like this, but that the industrial market would love it. And that's kind of how it's played out. So what Google, there's this like bunch of corporations out there that would pay a lot of money for this type of stuff. Yep. Well, maybe they will. Maybe you'll see uh, YSL uh, pilot suits. I have no idea. <laughs> They're friends. There, there we go. Um, okay. So in other news, Facebook has launched a new bunch of portals. You may remember portals because they are the video com video phone conferencing calling things from <laughs> Facebook. I don't know. They got from a Facebook camera Messenger. Yes. Yes. They, they work over Facebook Messenger. There's, is it three new, two new? There's a TV enabled one that works over your television and then, and then two standalones. Yeah. Two smaller ones. And before we go any further, I'm going to point out and disclose that I actually saw these products before they launched. I was a paid consultant to provide feedback to Facebook, essentially writing a review for the product before it even came out. So that way, I guess they would know what to expect. So I've provided that feedback. I was paid for it. And I so, approved him paying for it. So yes. I feel that we cannot, Kevin cannot be bought nor sold. No. Uh, no. Well, not, <laughs> maybe he can, but <laughs> maybe he we're can, not, but not, not for that amount of money and not yeah, from that company. Not at those yeah, so you and I never used the original portal devices. No, because I thought it would be nuts to let Facebook have a camera inside your home. Period. Right. And and what's interesting is that this out of the three products, one the TV one is a totally new one. The other two are revisions. Basically they they've changed the form factor of them and made them a little cheaper. Uh, they look like picture frames now as opposed to some futuristic kind of, you know, thing. The TV one, basically, yeah, Facebook is asking consumers to put a camera in their living room at that point because that's what it's for. It doesn't have a display. You connect it to a TV over HDMI and the TV screen, however big or small you have, is your video conferencing tool. Hard nope. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, is there, and I don't know if you can tell us this, is there mm -hmm. a physical... Sure, I can tell you. Yeah, that's public information. The um, There is a physical shutter switch on the TV, and you just slide it. It's magnetic. It actually works well. The other portal products, the picture frame looking ones, have uh, a switch to disable the mic or the camera or both. So those also have privacy shutters, I guess is what the best way to call it. Okay. So- Here's the thing. It's not just that you're giving camera, like Facebook, a camera in your living room so Facebook could watch you. You're also giving Facebook access to everything inside your home. So if this is in your kitchen, Facebook suddenly has a lot of information about, you know, brands that you might buy for food products. This is the same thing that I'm like, I, Amazon is, I don't think using this, but you've got to think bigger, you guys, in terms of like the data collection that's available for these things. So I heavily went through the terms of service and the privacy and so on, because I wanted to understand it. And is it possible that everything you described could happen? Yes. The way the product is designed, the camera is only on capturing when you're on a call. This is all according to Facebook and the terms of service. Um, the Video is not stored and the video is encrypted in transit, not end to end, unless 
you're on a WhatsApp call because they've added uh, WhatsApp support as well, that is encrypted end to end. So I'm not saying what you described couldn't happen. However, according to Facebook, that won't happen. Whether people believe that is up to them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you're interested in this, the 10-inch portal is 179. You're going to need two so you can talk to people. And the smaller version, which is called the Portal Mini, it has an 8-inch display, and that's 129. These will start shipping on October 15th. Oh, coincidentally, when the Google event happens. And the TV device is $149, and it will ship on November 5th. And if you buy two together, you get $50 off. Woo! All right, moving along. Let's talk about security. Specifically, how bad it still is for connected <laughs> devices. I know, I know, you guys. But we're going to talk about it because F-Secure launched a new report that has, oh, a lot of really disconcerting facts in there. They measured more than 2.9 billion events uh, in the first half of 2019. Those are, they put out little honeypots and they're like, hey, I'm vulnerable. Come attack me. And a lot of people did. So the more interesting thing for those of us with connected devices is what are they attacking now, Kevin? What aren't they? What aren't they attacking now? This report from F-Secure, which I always confuse with F-Society on Mr. Robot, is uh, very detailed, talking about the TCP ports that are often looked for and, and attacked. A lot of Telnet attacks, which... That's because Telnet is so vulnerable, and there's a lot of old devices. Right. They're always open. They're like the Denny's of <laughs> IoT reports, <laughs> yeah. or the IHOP of IoT You're, reports. We've got a Grand Slam security issue today. Exactly. Yeah. Older devices use this. This is why I always tell people some of these devices that you might have from you know the mid-aughts, early aughts, just throw them out. You cannot secure them. Recycle. Or recycle, sorry. That's yes. okay. Recycle them. The uh, other interesting thing, at least to me, is how much UPnP or universal plug and play is still attacked. And that's because it's really designed to be to make devices discoverable. <laughs> but the issue is, I don't know if there's a better protocol that could be made available or is available. Um, but Google's Chromecast products all use UPnP. I mean, why? Because it makes the consumer experience easier. Yes, and we'll make it very easy for you to get hacked. <laughs> well, it does for device setup. It does. Yes, I agree. But oh, it's not good when you're when your own devices in your home are advertising discovery, and somebody gets on your network. You're doing the work for them at that point. So we're going to ask our audience because they're super smart. What else could we do here? I really don't know. I'm a networking nerd to a certain point, but I really don't know what to do here. If anyone has suggestions, call us, tell us, or build a startup, or maybe it's just flamingly obvious, turn off UPnP, or unplug those devices. I don't know. All right. Since we don't have anything definitive to tell you to make you feel better about that, we're just going to move right along to a new <gasps> connected device. Hopefully, no Telnet, no UPnP. It is the Philips Hue. I'm calling it the TV box, but I bet it has a formal name. Basically, this is a device that you plug this in, and it syncs your lights, your hue lights, to your TV's screen's action. And this is so cool. It and is. it has been four or five years in the making. I remember Philips launched this at CES 
Oh my gosh. I Four think or five years ago. Yeah, 2014. Yeah. It was the CES. I got the flu and stayed in bed all day, which was fun. <laughs> they did this with Sci-Fi Channel. They did it with, I can't, Monkeys? Something about Monkeys? 12 Monkeys? Uh, 12 Is, Monkeys probably, yeah. Yeah. And then they did it with Sharknado, which <laughs> I loved. So I sat down with my... And this was only with the lights and the sync to sound cues on the television. So you had to have the TV on, the Hue app open, and your lights on for it to work. It's a little glitchy. However, when the shark bit into anyone, all of your Philips Hue lights turned red, and it was the most campy, awesome experience. <laughs> I don't care. You could, And when yeah. the thunder happened, like your low lights would strobe. It was very fun. But kind of a pain because the app kept wanting to turn off and you'd be like, oh, crap. Anyway, this box makes it so this works with everything. And I'm kind of pumped. I kind of want one. I want one too. But the price is putting me off because I don't already have an investment in Hue bulbs. Well, the price of the, just the box itself is still like 230 bucks. Yes. So I'm like, oh, if I could get a package for 230 bucks that included lights and a bridge and the, and the, and the official name is the Philips Hue Play HDMI sync box because it's basically an HDMI pass through with yeah. some smarts. So I love it. I want it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The current way my house is designed, I have only two lights in my living room that this would work with because I can't unplug my lights from my ceiling, but I'm really into this. All right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I really want it. Okay. Oh, more bad news. Uh, if you use an Amazon Echo device and you agreed to the terms of service, well, you also signed away your kids' privacy rights because Amazon is part of this lawsuit that has been filed about them collecting kids' data on their Echo devices. Amazon's saying in their court documents that if the parents agreed to an arbitration agreement, they also agreed on behalf of the children, even yeah. though the kids did not sign the Amazon contract. So what's happening is Amazon says, you can't do a class action lawsuit against us because you guys all agreed to arbitration. There's a couple things here. Arbitration is always, always anti-consumer. I know that's that sounds like a bold statement, and it is, but I, I fully believe that. It limits your options. It is frustrating, and companies abuse the heck out of it. They get to pick the arbitrator, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The other thing I don't like about this is, yes, as a parent, I do sign away my minor's rights all the time, like when I'm approving HIPAA policies and things like that. But in a terms of service agreement that you click through at the blink of an eye, most people, mm -hmm. this feels like an overreach. And I don't like it. So I don't either. I would love for the courts to say, I'm sorry, not only do you not sign away your kids' rights, but I don't think these TOCs are actually applicable in this way because people don't actually read them. That would be amazing. But I don't think that's going to happen. So we'll wait and see what happens on that. And in other news, Avnet, which is a giant systems integrator, technology company, everything else, they've signed an agreement to acquire Wetechio which is a private company that has embedded system software. Yay! This is only of note because Avnet has really become this very credible dark horse in industrial and enterprise IoT and trying to build out solutions. They're pretty impressive because they extend all the way from the maker group to like giant corporate 
solutions. So if Kevin, you don't have anything else to say, it's just a little bit of industrial news to throw in there. Sure. Let's talk about smart glasses. Those North smart glasses that we talked about, this is goes way back in the beginning of the IoT with the creation of a company called Thalmic Labs. They started out doing the arm. The arm. I was like looking at it. I'm like, it's not my wrist. It's the upper arm. They the Mayo? Was the it? Mayo. That's it. Boom. Yeah. You wrap this around your arm. It read your gestures and you could basically control a PowerPoint. I tested the device out. I was like, <laughs> this is cool in theory, very limited in practice. So they switched. They now make smart glasses. Um, they're called North. And the news here is that you now can buy them using an app. Prior to this, you had to go to Brooklyn to get fitted out because they need to measure like focal length and all these things. Because what it does is it has this tiny little screen that's in the glasses and it projects it right where you need it to be. I don't know. Kevin, would you buy these? Well, my eyesight is very, very poor. In fact, when I had Google Glass, I had to have custom lenses built in there and I had to wear contacts and all that because it was a mess for me. Would I buy them? Maybe if I didn't have all the eye problems. Got it. It depends on what it offers. You know, I, I don't think I need it at this point. Not yet. All right. And then, I don't know, speaking of things that go on your face or your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we've talked about this here in the U.S., that some of the airports are using facial recognition technologies at, at boarding. But in the U.K., Gatwick Airport, they're not trialing it for any set length of time. They are committed. It's happening. That's it. Hmm. Mm. Well, they did a trial last year. I believe it was with EasyJet, but that's it. Trial's over. They're doing it. Okay. Ooh, I don't... Mm, ah, mm. Yeah, well... And speaking of facial recognition, this is a lovely segue into our IoT podcast hotline question. Bum, 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 bum. The IoT podcast hotline is brought to you by Schlage. Schlage's wide variety of smart locks lets you create the smart home of your dreams. Learn more about Schlage's smart home solutions and compatibility with Amazon and Apple products and Google products. All of this and more is at schlage.com slash IOT. All right, IOT podcast wannabes. This month, we are giving away a Schlage lock. So if you call, ask us your smart home question, or I guess your industrial IOT question, although those are a little harder to answer, given that we do not work in that space, but we could try. Call us at 512-623-7424, and you might get on the show, and you will be entered to win a Schlage lock. So call us, ask us, just like our buddy here did. Let's hear this week's question. Hello, Stacy and Kevin. This is Drew calling from Newtown, Pennsylvania. Great show. Thanks for keeping us informed and entertained. I had a question regarding an email I received from Clear which I use for traveling to get through security. They've apparently set up an alliance with Hertz where you can use your clear biometric data to check out quicker when you rent a car. And I was just curious what your thoughts were on the use of sharing biometric data with companies such as Hertz. Thanks so much. Oh, Drew, thank you so much for this question. It's so applicable to all the hacks that we've seen, things like... Gatwick doing this facial recognition tech. The answer in this particular case, what Clear is doing with Hertz is it's actually really well done, it seems. It is. So 
Let's talk broadly about the challenges and security risks of biometric identification. One, depending on how it is done, it can be easily hacked. The nice thing is on faces, people have figured out that, you know, you need to have a, a depth sensor, not just like image recognition. You have to have like a time of flight sensor or something that does depth so you can't spoof it with a picture. So once that's done, that's pretty good. There's also technology that maps the blood flow in your face. That's even better than facial recognition because it can't be fooled with like a 3D mask or anything like that. There's also fingerprint data. Clear uses facial recognition, which is why we focused on that. And fingerprints. And fingerprints. That's true. Yes. With fingerprint data, there's a couple of issues. One, you probably shouldn't look for someone who's doing remote fingerprint approval. Fingerprints need to be, and faces need to be approved locally. So I wouldn't want, like if I had to fingerprint something and it sent that information over the web to unlock something, that's not as secure because someone who stole your fingerprint data could technically, I don't know, make a 3D rendering of your fingerprint, blah, blah, blah. Fingerprints are also, as you age, they change, they get worn down. So they can be tough to, to get. I know that if I'm out in the cold for too long, my fingerprint doesn't register. Also, if I'm washing dishes, my fingerprint doesn't register. So those are things to think about. Kevin, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I think those are all valid points. And what we did is um, we took a look at how Clear does all this. They translate the biometric data into basically an encrypted code. So they do use the cloud. It's a cloud-based system to verify things, but the biometric data is encrypted and, and it's hashed out. So, so if someone attacks the cloud and tries to steal your fingerprints, which has happened in several cases so far, they don't actually get the fingerprints. They get a hash, which is optimal. That's how you want to see this designed. Right. And in addition, in particular with, with uh, Drew's question on Hertz, we didn't see the email, obviously. What, what we did is we dug around on Hertz's site and Clear's site, and it turns out that Clear isn't actually sharing the biometric data with Hertz. As, as you mentioned, it's a partnership that they have, but what you do is you pick up your car at Hertz, you start driving out. Before the gate to leave Hertz, you have a clear kiosk there. And clear itself will verify your identity. And then they will pass along a linked, a unique linked ID with no biometric information to Hertz to actually complete the transaction. So it's really, they're in the middle of the process and they do not provide Hertz with any of your biometrics. So, Drew, Go with that convenience. Use it, I say. Do it, man. Yeah. All and right. shout out shout out to Newtown because it's only about 30 minutes from me. Oh, Yay. that's right. Yay. All right. That means Drew can come looking for you if his biometric information gets hacked based <laughs> on our advice. I don't have it. I don't have it. All right. Well, that concludes the news portion of this show. Please stay tuned for our guest, Dan Rosicki, who is the CEO and founder of The Transtech Group. This is a company that now gets 20% of its revenue from a sensor product. So a pavement engineering firm that now gets a fifth of its revenue from basically building its own connected sensor. I love it. It's a great story. Plus, we're going to talk about the future of roads, which we all should care about because we drive on them and fund them. Yay. And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is a pharaoh, and I have CEO Joe Britt here to talk to us. Welcome back, Joe. As usual, let's just take a moment to remind our listeners who a pharaoh is. 
Afero provides an IoT platform that simplifies how you connect anything, really, to the Internet. We can help you build a business case and take you all the way through rollout, fleet management, and data analytics for your products. Afero also happens to have the fifth largest patent portfolio in IoT globally, especially around things like security, onboarding, provisioning, and device management. Our customers tell us that Afero is the best choice for end-user experience and developer productivity, and it's also beautifully designed, easy to use, fast, and as we'll discuss today, very secure. All right, so last time we discussed the knob vulnerability in Bluetooth and how Afero was immune to that. And you've said that your platform approach to IoT is why customers get a lot of these benefits. So how do you define an IoT platform? IoT is a broad problem, and it gets harder as you scale with multiple connected products. So an IoT platform is really a solution that eliminates implementation complexities in a repeatable and consistent way. And the more complexities that it's able to eliminate, that is, the more flexible it is, the more useful it becomes. All right. Well, let's talk about those complexities. What are they? Well, to start with, business requirements like total cost, time to market, customer adoption. And then we also have to think about things like security, reliability, easy integration with the rest of the business, and how we extract value from the data. So IoT is generally a catalyst for digital transformation. And that's important since businesses also want to and often have to become more digital. So the IoT platform has to deliver those benefits consistently. And to do that, it has to really be independent of a lot of the underlying details. So what are some of those details? Well, to build anything, it's good to separate the architecture from the implementation. And Afero helps with that, crafting the right architecture for your IoT projects. And to implement it, a long laundry list of choices need to be made. And the IoT platform then has to support any choice you make and make it possible for you to change your mind. The best way, and maybe the only way, to support so many things is to be agnostic or to be independent of them. And so you want an IoT platform that's independent of the choice of radio, microcontroller, protocol, operating system, mobile application, cloud, voice assistant, etc. And it has to be independent of the device too. So it can support multiple device types and support what we sometimes call super apps, mobile apps that can manage many different kinds of devices. Thank you, Joe, for that. And please remind us where people can go for more information about Afero. Afero.io slash go dash big is the best place to start. If you're a developer, please also check out developer.afero.io. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Dan Brozicki, who is president and founder of the TransTech Group. Hi, Dan. How are you today? I'm doing great, Stacey. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I am super excited. So you guys may not realize this, but Dan is an old friend of mine. Maybe. Yeah, he's just old. Stacey. He's old and he's a friend. That's um, better. So we're going to have a lot of fun. I am excited because we're going to talk about the future of roads. But before we get there, Dan, you have to tell us what the TransTech Group does. Okay. And I like how you get excited about the idea of the topic of future of roads, because that is, you know, typically a conversation stopper. TransTech is a pavement engineering firm. That means uh, we design highways, we design runways and seaports. And in simple terms, when it's time to design a new highway, you have to figure out how thick that highway is going to be based on how much trucks and weather and what part of the world you're in. And then you also have to figure out the recipe of the concrete or the asphalt. And so, in a basic sense, that's that's what Transect does. 
Woo! You're not going to get any cool or hot pavement recipes from this particular show. Instead, we are going to talk about how we're going to be embedding technology into roads and how Dan's company has adopted its own sensor products and use that to help transform its business. So first up, Dan, we... I think we first started talking about this when you guys built a Bluetooth-based sensor for measuring, I don't know, the doneness of concrete. Why don't you describe why that product made sense and how you got into that? Yes, absolutely. And doneness may or may not be an official scientific term, but I like it. I might start using it. The product that we built using Bluetooth technology was to solve a problem that construction companies have when they build concrete highway pavement. Concrete highway pavements, if you imagine, it's made up of cement and water and rocks and sand. And when the water and the cement mixes, it is an exothermic reaction. So it gives off heat. So when you first pour concrete on the road, as it sets up, that exothermic reaction is happening between the cement and the water, giving off heat. And so the temperature of the concrete is going up. If it goes up too high, the concrete can Correct. So contractors need a reliable way to track that temperature, make sure it doesn't get too hot. And before we developed our product, the method that they were using was just old-fashioned thermocouple wire is what it's called. It's this K-wire and it's it's very crude and there's, there's just no technology in it. And it was expensive and laborious. So we developed a small sensor that is sacrificial. It goes in the concrete and it stays there forever. And out of the concrete is a wire that attaches to a handheld reader that we developed with software that we wrote. And we found over the years that contractors really love the idea of being able to capture that information wirelessly. We did a bunch of research. We looked at lots of different RF technologies and settled on Bluetooth for a lot of obvious reasons, but we found it was cheap and easy to create and has been very reliable. Okay, so you've been selling this Bluetooth sensor. It is about $100 for the sensor. Yeah. Customers love it. Yes. And this is something you could put in pavement. You probably could put this anywhere there's concrete, I'm guessing. Yes. Okay. So we started with pavement customers because that's the industry we know. And over time, other industries started hearing about our product. So now our product is in lots of office buildings. It's in sports stadiums. It's in dams and reservoirs for water. It's being used in every wind turbine that you see out in the prairie. It has a giant concrete foundation that keeps it from toppling over. And so all of those things are now using our product. One of the interesting aspects of our product is some of our competitors have also glommed onto the idea of using a Bluetooth transmitter, but they actually submerge that transmitter. The Bluetooth chip actually gets submerged into the concrete, which we think is not a smart idea because it is very difficult to push a Bluetooth signal through concrete, so you don't get a whole lot of range. And they end up having to sacrifice every Bluetooth chip because it's attached to the actual sensor that's recording the temperature. So we actually, the $100 device that we sell, it sits outside the concrete, clips to the sensor, and that, that way it's completely reusable. Where our competitors are typically charging about $125 per sensor, we charge only 40 dollars per sensor and then you buy the hundred dollar box that you referenced that's the bluetooth transceiver you just buy it one time and you reuse it awesome from a business impact if you're selling this for at cost is this a new revenue source for you guys it's revenue and profit. So what's exciting about it is we think of the whole business as being sort of a razor razor blade model. So we're selling the sensors for 40 bucks each, and that's where we have profit is in the sensors. And so we sell like 35,000 sensors a year at 40 bucks a pop. 
And then the $100 box that you're talking about, right, we sell that at cost, but it's a way, you know, it's like a low cost leader. It's a way of getting customers in the door so that they find it's much less expensive to get started with our system. Because the other guys, you know, you're going to have to buy 10 sensors at 125 bucks a piece versus ours uh, for, you know, less than half the price. Got it. Okay. So now that you've done that, what's next for your business? Well, Stacy, I am super glad you asked that question because what we're working on next is really exciting. What we have right now is BLE4, which is Bluetooth Low Energy. What we're developing is BLE5 Long Range, and that is kind of the newest version of, of Bluetooth. It's just now coming on the market, and that is going to dramatically extend the range of our customers' ability to collect data. With BLE4, you get about 30 feet of range, and with BLE5 Long Range, so far our early tests are as much as like 700 meters, in some cases, almost up to a kilometer. So what this means, if you're using our Bluetooth 5 long range transmitter, and all of those sensors are communicating via BLE 5 long range to the gateway, collects the data, sends it to a cell tower, that now means that the whole construction site in terms of collecting this data is fully autonomous. Like we don't need any humans on the construction site anymore. And so the person who needs to look at the data can simply open their laptop from anywhere in the world and collect all the information uh, from their construction site. Okay. But now how does this work? Originally, you have the sacrificial sensor. There's a wire. You clip your handheld device to the wire. It sounds like this is not going to do that. Right. So the original version, when we first started this product, the sensor was in the concrete, a wire is poking out of the concrete, and you had to physically clip that wire to your reader. Today, what we offer people with Bluetooth 4 is they can clip the little $100 box to that sensor, and that wirelessly sends data to their iOS device that they have in the vicinity. And what we're working on now with Bluetooth 5 long range is no humans on the construction site collecting data at all. All of those boxes, instead of Bluetooth 4, they'll use Bluetooth 5. It'll go up to 700 meters, go to the gateway, which sends the data to the cell tower, and they are remote. The end user can be anywhere. Excellent. Okay. And you're using Bluetooth 5. Did you consider any other low power, wide area network technologies? Yes. We also looked at LoRa, which is also relatively new in the U.S. It's been in Europe for the last several years. And LoRa is exciting in that it's sub-gig. It operates, I think, at around 915 megahertz and has much longer range capabilities than BLE5. But it doesn't have the broadcasting kind of range. Like It's much more line of sight. So on a construction site where you have lots of you know, physical obstructions, it just wouldn't be able to work very well in terms of getting around those kinds of obstructions. And so, so far, it appears that LoRa, while exciting, it's low power, it's long range, it has some great applications, but on a construction site, not so much. Let's get to the fun stuff. Not that this wasn't fun, but I am excited to hear about the future of roads and the challenges ahead. Yes. So are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Let's, let's break it down. Okay. So as I mentioned, as a pavement engineering firm that also does pavement research, we are very big in keeping our eye on what the future of connected automated vehicles, the future of highways, how roads are going to be designed and built and maintained, and how we drivers are going to use them differently in the future. And man, there is a ton of new stuff happening all over the world. All right, let's pick one. Autonomous vehicles. What am I going to need to think about? 
So with autonomous vehicles, there's a lot of things to be thinking about. One of them is the highway might be able to recharge your car as you drive down the highway. It's called dynamic electric vehicle charging. Qualcomm has made a system. A couple other companies have systems that they're prototyping. And the Illinois Tollway Authority was actually seriously considering a 22-mile stretch in Chicago where they could charge you extra money so that you could recharge your car as it drives down the highway. How efficient would something like that be? Because as the owner of an electric car, I can tell you that getting two miles to the gallon or two additional miles for an hour of charging is not going to be very exciting. Well, it could be really efficient. The tricky part is there's still a lot of debate going on about whether the actual cost of installing this in a roadway is really going to provide enough return on an investment. Because while this is being considered, we also have Tesla's getting more efficient. Lithium batteries are becoming more efficient. And so a lot of the skeptics say that this is probably not going to be all that necessary because range on vehicles is getting better. Battery costs are coming down. And so there just may not really be a strong business case for actually embedding electric vehicle charging in a roadway. Are there other things associated with autonomous vehicles and the future of roadways we should know about? Specifically with autonomous, yeah, I mean, as we're looking at, there's so many things going on with connecting vehicle-to-vehicle communication, vehicle-to-infrastructure communication. So there are a lot of people looking at ways to relieve traffic congestion if you could have cars talking to each other and helping each other control speed. So that is one of the kind of the new research things that's coming on now, where you would be hands off the wheel in congested areas where they would be able to kind of stop that uh, shockwave effect that happens when traffic slows down in a congested area. I think one of the challenges associated with that right now is that we're having kind of a standards fight, correct? The vehicle to infrastructure communication efforts are really exciting. But I know that to get there, it feels like we've got a lot of chicken and egg kind of challenges like, ah, who's going to do what first? And we have the standards battle. So yes, how do you think this will evolve? If we're going to see movement here, who's going to move first? Well, unfortunately, the state DOTs have to be the regulating body that's going to push a lot of this forward. So the U.S. Department of Transportation is is making some headway in getting regulations and getting something standardized. But you're correct. It's all still totally the Wild West, and there's still not really a lot of standardization. Now, the states that are doing the most are the Florida DOT is in the process of building a gigantic proving ground test track certification facility called SunTracks. And that's tracks with a T-R-A-X. And if you Google it, it's super fascinating. For the last few years, Colorado DOT has had a program called Road X. And that was their attempt to try to find ways to standardize like new sensors and pavements and vehicle to infrastructure communication and setting up network operation centers and all kinds of fascinating things that will be able to drive our cars for us. And then right now, the Ohio DOT is starting a program called Ohio Drive. And that's also looking into how can we start standardizing and regulating these things so that we can actually start taking advantage of what's fascinating is, you know, most new cars out now are already at level three autonomy for vehicles. And really, you know, to get to level five, a lot of car manufacturers and Waymo and Uber and Tesla, they all act like level five is going to be here in 2021. And that's a lie. It's not going to happen fast. And it's going to take a long time before we truly get to that. But the good news is there's a lot in level three that we could actually start turning on some of those capabilities now. And I think we could start making a lot of improvements now to the way vehicles are communicating with each other and that that could help reduce traffic congestion in urban areas. 
Yeah, I'm really bummed about the the lack of level five autonomy, which is your car basically drives you anywhere. Because my daughter, who's 13, is rapidly approaching the age where she's going to be behind the wheel. Ah, <laughs> that's correct. All right. But the closest that we will get, and you've started to see some of this around already. There are things like shuttle buses and downtown corridors and those kinds of things where they will be able to approach level four, level five in probably the next five years. And we, we see some tests that are happening, not just in California, but elsewhere around the country. And one of the cool things with autonomous vehicles is, I, I think we take this for granted, but a lot of our cars, they don't see signs like we see signs. So you can confuse an autonomous car by just changing a couple color blocks on like a stop sign for them. And they're like, oh, this is no longer something I recognize. So one of the things that I've been fascinated is this idea of building a robot readable world. And are we seeing anything on the infrastructure side around helping make better highway stripes? Maybe it's road signs for autonomous vehicles. Yeah, there's two really interesting projects that I've seen that are super awesome. So 3M, maker of the Post-it and lots of other things, they actually, for the last couple of years now, have been selling road signs that have an infrared layer printed at on the sign that has a barcode on it. So you and I cannot see it, but you're right. Every autonomous vehicle or automated vehicle or vehicle with level three autonomy in it can read the barcode on that road sign. And so you and I will just see road work ahead, but they will see all sorts of information about lane changes or work zones ahead or where the car is located or possible striping challenges or damage to the road. Lots more information than you and I could possibly glean. That's really exciting. And then a second thing that's happening in the Netherlands, there's an engineer slash artist named Dan Rosengard, who really, this is not so much new material, but he basically took phosphorus material, so glow-in-the-dark powder, and he's mixed it in with traditional pavement lane marking striping material, and he's made glow-in-the-dark stripes. And so now you have much more vivid, not only for the driver, but also because it's so much more reflective, it's great for the, for the vehicle as well to be able to you know, stay in the lane better. Let's tackle another piece of bad news, climate change. This is not good for any of us, but it's really not good for roads. So what are the research things happening here? So FEMA and the U.S. Department of Transportation are putting a ton of money behind what they're referring to as road resiliency, which is what are the things that we can do to make our highway infrastructure be able to survive in an era of you know, super storms and major hurricanes. And it was actually a story just recently that we're up to like 40 coastal cities in the U.S. that just have daily high tide flooding. I just heard a new story from NPR that in Charleston, South Carolina, like this just happens on a daily basis. You can have sunny conditions, but the tide comes in and the whole town floods. That is a tremendous problem. And so DOT and FEMA are actually putting a lot of money and doing a lot of climate change and road resiliency research. So how does technology, specifically IoT and sensors, how can that help us build more resilient roads? Well, there's a lot of technology in, in trying to do that. So there's, there's early detection sensors that are being developed that can detect when a road floods or if it freezes. Um, and that can immediately alert people. So, you know, like sanding a frozen road or salting a frozen road is really very old fashioned. And there's just that there's so many new sensors that are out that are cheap that are now being tested on highways where we can immediately alert your cell phone when your commute is got some dangerous areas. And so that way you don't have to go out and brave frozen roads. We can tell you now to your phone when that's, you know, if that's occurring, that's good progress. 
Okay. And those sensors, are those, as you called them earlier, and I love this term, sacrificial sensors? Like, how a would lot something of them like are, that yeah. work? Well, so there's, there's some pretty cool energy technology that is being developed right now. So you're correct. Some of those sensors are sacrificial, and some of them are, you know, they design them with low enough power so that they can last five or ten years without having to be replaced. There is a cool new technology Well, it's not new technology, but there's newly developed sensors that are using piezoelectric crystals. And those are crystals that when you squeeze them, they create a certain amount of voltage, which can be converted into energy, and that can actually power the sensor. So as traffic drives over the sensor, that recharges the sensor and lets the sensor operate indefinitely. Awesome. And anybody out there who has a Hue tap device in their home has the exact same technology. It's a, it's a piezoelectric sensor that is whenever you press it, it generates the power to keep it going and send those radio signals out. I just want to like tie those things together because it's awesome. There's a company in Israel called InnoWatt Tech that has probably been the largest proponent of piezoelectric sensors in roadways. And they, they've got a test section in Israel that's been down since like 2009. And it's, and it's about a mile long of roadway that as traffic drives over it, it repowers all the lights that go up and down the road. That's amazing. Although terrible if you live in a, a very rural area. But I'm sure they'll come up with something for that. You have also talked about uh, using drones, not just to monitor traffic, but to let people know when there are problems on the roadway that could use repairing. Is that happening? Yeah. So, you know, and that's a big thing that's changing right now. So drones historically, as you would assume, have not been permitted to fly over live traffic for obvious reasons, and it's dangerous. But their Ohio DOT is, I think, the first in the country to start permitting that so that they can do live traffic monitoring using drones. They can also use drones to monitor pavement condition. So you can detect potholes, you can detect frozen conditions, you can detect traffic jams. They're using drones to also detect when vehicles leave the roadway so they can alert EMS immediately. And there's also even sensors actually that are being tested now that use a magnetic field to keep track of when cars leave the roadway so that they can alert EMS immediately. Oh, you know, I think I saw something like that in Colorado. They, yeah. they have a pilot there. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Cool. That's part of the Colorado Road X program. It's, uh, they're doing those sensors. Yes. So, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Awesome. All right. So before we go, I have to ask, because you sent me this presentation about the future of roads, and there's a whole section, well, it's a picture really, on bioluminescent trees to light the roadways at night. What the heck is that? Why is that in there, Dan? Oh, man. I'm not proud of this one, but this is a real thing that's happening. So there are legitimate people with real jobs who are figuring out ways to make trees along the side of the highway glow in the dark. They have isolated the same enzyme that makes fireflies glow. It's called luciferase. And they have figured out ways to inject that into the leaves of trees and make the entire tree glow in the dark. And if you think that's bananas, as I thought it was bananas, it is not just one crazy researcher doing it. It is a team of researchers at MIT, and there are other universities in Denmark and universities in France, and they are all independently working on this. So they are treating it like it's a real thing. But I have all sorts of skepticism around it. Not the least bit being that many trees lose their leaves in the winter? Well, that seems like that should be an important consideration. Meanwhile, you know, they've actually claimed that they've gotten it up to like eight hours of glow. This is crazy because streetlights are the cornerstone of a good 
smart city infrastructure system. They have power, they have positioning, and they have space. But you can't beat a tree. Uh, apparently not. All right. Well, I look forward to the glow-in-the-dark trees and better pavement engineering, and I appreciate you coming on the show this week. Thanks, Dan. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stacy. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 